Well, good morning, church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to be in the house of the Lord together. Um, uh, just wanted to announce, we'll uh, uh, do a more of a formal announcement, but we've got a, a couple resident missionaries that we support who are going to be with us these past, next couple weeks. And uh, so we've got uh, Carl and Joanna Rogers. Um, if you see them around, we'd love for you to chat with them, get to know them a little bit. They're preparing uh, to head out to Europe, possibly to minister to the Roma people. And so they'll also be staying in uh, the missionary house, uh, I mean the parsonage, right across uh, the street, and so um, they'll be around, and so we just want you to, to, to get to know them a little bit. But as we turn to the word, uh, can we take a moment to bow in prayer? Um, Father in heaven, we thank you for this time of worship to uh, just rest in knowing, Lord, that you are our God who takes care of us. If you can meet our greatest need, salvation, how much more will you meet all of our other needs? And so, Father, in a moment like this, we shift our focus uh, off of our weeks, off of our lives and onto you. We pray in a moment like this that you would just impress your word in our, in, into our hearts. Lord, that by the work of the word and the spirit in our hearts, we would be conformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And so, Father, in light of your word, what we know not teach us, what we have not given us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us. And we pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Um, in 2005, in Istanbul, Turkey, there was uh, a Turkish newspaper that reported that a sheep had uh, walked off of a 50-foot cliff and jumped to its death. The reason it hit the news was because following it were 1,500 sheep who jumped after it. Uh, the, in the end, what ended up happening was 400 of these sheep actually died, catching the fall of the 1,100 who followed after. So thankfully, some had survived. But the interesting thing about sheep who don't know where they're going is they will often follow another member of the flock simply because they don't know where they're going. You know, in light of that story, as Christians and as believers, we're reminded we are in the world, but we've not been called to be of the world. We've been called not to be conformed to this world, not to be conformed to the crowds or to the culture around us, but just because we're called not to conform to the world does not mean we will not face the pressures from the world to conform to the culture and the crowd among us. This morning, I want us to ask and consider this question, what do you do when you feel that pressure to conform? Now, what do you do as a student when you feel the pressure to uh, adopt the worldly values of your peers? What do you do as a student when your teacher or your professors that you find yourself under challenge your biblical worldview or challenge your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? What do you do when you feel the pressures as an employee, as you are tempted to fudge the numbers or to cut corners simply because others are doing it around you or your boss expects it? From you, What do you do as a Christian or as a believer uh, when you get tired of others labeling you, even among your family, as bigoted and tolerant and closed-minded, simply because you're a Bible-believing Christian who believe that the, the Word of God is the final authority on all matters to which it speaks, what do you do when you feel the pressure of the world around you? This morning, I want to invite you to 1 Peter Chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 13 to 21, and we're going to talk about how to pursue holy living in a sinful world. Peter is going to encourage us for how to pursue holy living in a sinful world. As you turn there in your Bibles, Peter is writing to a people that he described in verse 1 as those who are strangers and are scattered. They are in the world, but not, they are not of the world, but doesn't mean they don't feel the pressures of the world pressing in on against them. And in the midst of the pressures, Peter encourages them in light of a holy life to pursue holy living, and he shares with us what that looks like. And so as you turn there in your Bibles in 1 Peter, I'd like to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of the word as we consider how we are encouraged to pursue holy living in a sinful world. Chapter 1, verse 13 reads this way. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober, 
And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you upon the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believed in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. This morning, as we dig through our text, the question I want us to consider together is, how are we encouraged to pursue holy living in a fallen and sinful world around us? Knowing that we are called to be in the world, but not of the world, how do we live a holy life set apart to the purposes of God that we find ourselves in? As we walk through our text, we're going to talk about three things, but I'd like to just uh, let you know what they are at the beginning. We, we're encouraged to prepare our mind for action, to prepare our life in imitation, and to prepare our heart um, in light of the example that God has shown us with the right motivation. I'd like to begin by talking about pursuing holy living by means of, of, of preparing our mind for action. Peter puts it this way in verse 13. He says this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 13, there are a number of verbs that we see in our English translation, but there's really just one main verb. The rest of the verbs are the supporting verbs. They're what we call participles in the Greek, and, and they tell us how we are to uh, obey the command, which is, the, which is to rest our hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the main command in verse 13 is to rest your hope on the future return of Jesus Jesus, who's coming back in glory. And so how does that motivate us unto holy living? Because we're called to live in light of his future return. As believers and as Christians, we've not been simply called to live in light of this world, but we've been called to live in light of that which is to come when Jesus comes and issues in, in his eternal reign forever and ever. And so when we live in light of the return of Christ, what we no longer do is we no longer put our hope in ourselves. We no longer place our hope in our fleshly desires. We no longer put our hope in those things of this world that pass away, but we live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. As Peter encourages these believers to rest your hope or place your hope in the future return of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he connects it to the first 12 verses. As we were reminded in the first 12 verses of our great salvation, the first word that you see in verse 13 is therefore. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Therefore, be sober. Therefore, rest your hope on the future return of Jesus Christ. What is that motivation for resting our hope on the future return of Christ, which allows us to live in light of our eternal hope of glory in Jesus who's coming back again? Well, what we talked about last week. Remember, if you were with us, we talked about our great salvation and three key things that Peter reminded us of last time. He reminded us of our past election. He reminded us of our future inheritance. He reminded us of our present joy. And that is the motivation to live in light of the future return of Jesus Christ. If you remember last time, we were talking about how he reminded us of God's, the Father's past election. That in eternity past, God set his affections on us and chose us so that we would be sanctified by the Spirit and so that we would be redeemed by the Son. And you know, that should motivate us to live in light of the future return of Christ and to set our lives apart as holy. 
Uh, Last time we were together, he also reminded us of our great salvation by reminding us of our future inheritance. If you remember what it was called, it was our living hope that's grounded in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Did you know when you and I in church or we sing about it or we come under the teaching of it or the devotional time, when we reflect on who Christ is and what he's done, it motivates us to live in light of the future return of Jesus Christ because we're reminded in light of our living hope, in light of our future inheritance, that he who is Jesus came, he died, he was buried. The third day he rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he promises to come back in glory. Therefore, we can live in light of the future return of Jesus Christ. But also, we were reminded last time, in light of our great salvation, of our present joy. Peter reminded us in those first 13 verses that trials are just part of the, uh, the experience for believers in this life. We know that the problems they faced were that of persecution, and they felt the pressures of persecution coming in against them, but, but Peter reminded them the reason they can have present joy in the midst of trials and suffering and tribulation is because the suffering is just temporary. As we are encouraged to follow the example of Christ, Jesus suffered for a time but he would experience glory forever and ever. And so we are to consider that suffering now is a promise that there is glory later and the glory of heaven does not compare to the present suffering that we face. And that motivates us to live in light of the return of Christ and set ourselves apart as holy in our day-to-day walk before the Lord. And so, uh, first, he connects the command to the previous 12 verses in regards to our great salvation. Therefore, rest your hope on the future return of Christ. But not only does he connect us to that, he connects us to the command. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. How do you prepare your mind for action as you rest your hope on the coming of Jesus Christ by means of girding up the loins of your mind. Now, for us, that's an unfamiliar image. Back in their day and age, to gird up the loins uh, of your mind meant literally that individuals, they had long flowing robes, kind of like dresses. And if you were gonna go anywhere, you needed to prepare yourself for action. And so what you would do is you would grab these long flowing robes and pull them between your legs and you'd tuck them into your belt and you were prepared to run. You were prepared to fight if you needed to. You were prepared to go to work. And so if you needed to prepare yourself for action, you'd gird up your loins and put it into your belt and now you were ready for action. What Peter is calling on believers to do is to prepare your mind for action. If you're going to Rest your hope on the coming of Jesus Christ and live in light of his return and by adopting a holy life, you gotta prepare your mind. Holy living begins in our minds. How do you prepare your mind for action as a believer? How do you prepare your mind for action in order to serve the Lord in obedience to him by setting yourself apart as holy by means of your commitment to the word of God in prayer? So every morning when we wake up, we have an opportunity to prepare our mind by focusing ourselves on the word. Every morning we have an opportunity to prepare our minds for action by focusing ourselves on the Lord through prayer. And so we're reminded that there should not go a day that passes by that we are not spending time in the word of God in prayer and preparing our minds by girding up our loins of our minds for actions. And so uh, we're reminded that this resting our hope is connected to our great salvation. It's connected to the command to prepare your mind for action, but it's also connected to the command to be sober. To be sober or to be sober-minded means that we are invited to come under the influence of nothing other than the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 tells us, "Do do not be drunk with wine, but be you filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't come under the influence of alcohol where your speech could become slurred and you're unable to walk properly, but come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. As believers who are called to be sober-minded, we are called to be those who do not come under the influence or the control of anything other than the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, a good thing can often become a bad thing when it becomes an excessive thing in our life. When we turn to it and replace it with, instead of turning to the Lord in it. 
You know, food, it can, it's a good thing, but it can become a bad thing when we turn to food in order to bring us satisfaction or to get away from struggles uh, and it becomes an idol in our life. Relationships are the same way when they become an excessive thing in our lives. And so we're called to be sober-minded in the sense that we are not to be controlled by anything. We're not to be controlled by our fleshly desires. We're not to be controlled by the things of this world. We're to be under the control and under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, To be sober-minded is uh, to be alert. Uh, If if we're to be sober-minded as we rest our hope on the future return of Jesus Christ, that means we understand the urgency. We're not just living in light of this world, but we're living in light of that which is to come. We're reminded that if we're going to be alert, that means that, uh, that, that means that we're not going to invest in the temporal, but we're going to invest in the eternal. And there are things in this world that moth and rust destroy, but our investment should be in those things that are eternal. What are those things that are eternal? God, his word, and his people. Those three things are investments that we can make. To be sober-minded is to be alert, but also to be sober-minded is to be disciplined. If we're going to pursue holy living and, and, and be sober-minded, it begins uh, by means of a disciplined life. You know, the closest thing to our mind is our eyes. It's a good thing as believers and as Christians that we discipline what we allow our eyes to see. There's a song we sing as children, be careful little eyes what you see. For the Father up above is looking down with love. Be careful little eyes what you see. The older you get, the more you know just how important that truly is. What you let in will ultimately reveal whether or not you will live a life set apart to the Lord in holiness. Garbage in, garbage out. And so we're encouraged to be sober-minded. We're encouraged to prepare our minds for action. But also, as we are encouraged to rest our hope on the future return of Christ, we are called to do that enabled by God's amazing grace the text says in verse 13 it tells us therefore gird up the loins of your mind be sober rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ grace is God's unmerited undeserved favor You say, what are you you talking about? We we already have experienced God's grace. And because of his grace, we have been justified, declared righteous to be in a right standing before God. What are you talking about? We've already received grace and we experience it every day because his saving grace is also his enabling grace that changes us and transforms us into the likeness of Jesus Christ moment by moment and day by day. And hopefully you and I look a little bit more like Jesus today than we did yesterday because of the work that he's continuing to do in our heart and our lives. But when it talks about this grace that will ultimately, uh, that will ultimately uh, be provided to us concerning the return of Jesus Christ, it doesn't just talk about the grace that provides us justification and sanctification, but our future glorification. Let me read it to you again. Verse 13, Set, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are encouraged to rest our hope by living in light of the future return of Jesus as our uh, return of Jesus, our Savior and Lord in glory. And so first, how do you, how are we encouraged to, to live a holy life in the midst of a sinful world by means of our resting our hope in the future return of Christ and living in light of that future return? We're not living in light of this world, we're living in light of that which is to come and investing not in the temporal, we're investing in the eternal. What does that look like for us as believers who are in the world but are called not to be of the world? I'd like to give us a couple or a few applications. The first one is this, uh, insulate, don't isolate. Insulate, don't isolate. As Christians, sometimes we feel the pressures of the culture and the crowd, and sometimes uh, we think that the best thing to do is to isolate from the world around us. But we've been called to be salt and light, moral preservatives. We've been called to shine the light because light shines brightest against a dark background. The darker the background, the brighter the light. If you're in a dark environment in the workplace, 
Now, you gotta follow God's leading, but what an opportunity to shine the light of Jesus Christ among those around you. Now, sometimes in terms of isolation, we, we adopt a hermit mentality. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, just hide away in a cave, and I don't want to uh, be around unbelievers or, Christ, or, or, or those who aren't Christians. And ultimately, we don't have an opportunity to shine the light of Jesus Christ. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. Now, some people have adopted over the centuries a monk mentality. What you need to do is you need to leave the influences of the world or even the world's influences and, and go into a Christian commune and only be among believers and live there the rest of your life. When the reality is we're not called to, to, to isolate, we've been called to insulate and we are called to insulate against the influences of the world around us. How do you insulate against the worldly influences? Three things. God's word, prayer, and attending a body of believers committing to a local church. Church, this morning, I'd like to encourage you, if you are not spending time in the word of God and prayer every day, if you are not committed to a local church, readjust your life. There is a sewer around us, and if we are not insulating ourselves through God's word and prayer, and insulating ourselves through a commitment to a local body, a local church, then that sewer will easily get in. We've been called to be in the world, but not of the world, we've been called to holiness. Listen, holiness is not dependent on what's around us, holiness is dependent on the one who lives in us. And we are not to be influenced by the world, but we should be those who influence those around us and shine the light of Jesus Christ. Insulate, don't isolate. Secondly, if I could give a word of encouragement, it would be to rely on his grace as you invest in the eternal over the temporal God's grace is the means by which we are justified, are being sanctified, and one day we will be glorified. And his unmerited favor it gives us the ability to live in light of his future return. Often we get distracted, right, by the busyness of life. We have busy schedules. There's plenty of things going on in our life. And that busyness can often distract us from our top priority, which is indeed to live not just in light of this life, but to live in light of the life to come, which is eternal as we invest in those eternal things. So rely on God's grace to enable you to do just that. And then thirdly this morning, if I can encourage us to rest in the hope of his future return. Jesus is coming back again. What a wonderful announcement that is indeed. The world doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse. Thanks be to God that Jesus is coming back again. In the words of the Gaithers in the 70s, they wrote, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living because he lives. Rest your hope on the return of Jesus Christ who's coming back again in glory. And when you do, you are able to live in light of his future return. And so how do you pursue holy living in a sinful world First and foremost, by preparing your mind for action. Rest your hope on his future return. Secondly, by preparing your life in imitation. We are called in verses 14 to 15 to be holy as God is holy. Let me read that to you again. Verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. The one command in verse 13 is to rest your hope. The one command in verses 14 to 15 is to be holy as God is holy. The rest of the verbs are simply supporting verbs. They're participles, they're verbal adjectives. And so what our encouragement is in verses 14 to 15 is to imitate the Father who is holy. 
Prepare your life for imitation by being holy as God is holy. How are we encouraged to be holy as God is holy? Uh, First, as obedient children. We're reminded here of our unique relationship we have with God. You know, technically, we could say that all humanity is a child of God simply because he is the creator. But the truth of the matter is that we are in a state of rebellion against God when we are born into this world. So certainly you could say that he is your father as your creator, but he is not your father in the sense that you are in a right standing before him. Or mind, we're born into this world in enmity with God. And what we need is to be reconciled to him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the means by which we can be holy as he is holy is first and foremost by being obedient children. And that comes through faith in Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. In in Romans 8.15 it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but... You receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. What a special relationship we have with God the Father for those of us who have trusted in Christ as our Savior and Lord. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified Together, we are called to be holy as he is holy, as obedient children. John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If we truly love God as obedient children, we will demonstrate it by our obedience to him. And so first and foremost, we are to be reminded of our identity as obedient children. Let us be holy as he is holy. But secondly, as obedient children, uh, as obedient children, what we've been called to, to, as we are to be holy as he is holy, is not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Now, Peter is writing both to Gentiles and Jews. He's writing to those who have been, who are described as those who are strangers, who are scattered, And he's talking most likely to a majority of Gentiles and these are individuals who have passed lifestyles and what Peter is commanding them to do is don't go back to your old lifestyle. Don't go back to your old fleshly desires and your old fleshly sins. I think maybe someone needs to hear this message this morning. If you're a Christian and believer as an obedient child of God, stop going back to your old lifestyle of sin. Stop going back to the, 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 the old desires that, that don't ultimately satisfy, but satisfaction is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in scripture, we read about what those are. In uh, Galatians 5.19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewd, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders. It keeps going on. Let me keep reading. Drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't go back. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Pay attention to verse 11. It says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of God. Were you once a fornicator, idolater, an adulterer, a homosexual, a sodomite? Don't go back. That's what the text is saying. Why? Well, the text says we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified. Have you been a thief? Have you been covetous, a drunkard, a reviler, extortioner? Listen, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Don't go back. Why? Because you've been washed, you've been justified. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Don't go back. 
And so the invitation is for all of us this morning to pursue holiness by not going back to our old lifestyle, going back to their old fleshly desires, but rather be holy as he is holy. Be holy as he is holy by not conforming to the world but being conformed by the renewing of our mind. There's only one other place where that word conformed is used, and it's in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's the mind again. Holiness begins in the mind, and we need to be sober in our thinking. To not be conformed to this world is to not be squeezed into the mold of the world. Not to be squeezed into the value system of the world or the the way that the world thinks, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the work of the word and the spirit in our hearts. Which is why we commit ourselves to God's word moment by moment, day by day, just continuing to get God's word in our heart and our mind. And it changes our outlook on life. And so, how are we to be holy as God is holy, be obedient children, don't go back to your old lifestyle, and then thirdly, by focusing on your example. The text continues, and it tells us in the verse, as in your ignorance 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because as it is written, be holy, for I am holy. What we're reminded this morning is that God is holy and we are to imitate him. Uh, Holy simply means set apart, distinct, unique. Now, when scripture often describes God's holiness, it doesn't just use holiness in isolation. It says holy, holy, holy to add emphasis because there's not a word in the Greek or in the English translation that can capture the extent to the holiness of God. God is so holy that we've got to repeat it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is holy in all of his characteristic and his divine attributes. There is no one like our God. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and all-good. No one is as powerful as our God. No one is all all wise like our God. No one is good like our God. There is no one like our God. And what we've been called to be is holy, set apart to his purposes. Be holy as I am holy. Now, in our English language, we use holy sometimes. For instance, we often refer to marriage as holy matrimony. Why do we call it as holy matrimony? Because marriage is God's design. It's to be set apart to his purposes. The Bible, we refer to it as a holy Bible. Why? Because scriptures are set apart to his purposes. And also, there's no book like the Bible. You take a look at all the religious books of history, there's nothing like the holy scriptures that we have, the inerrant, infallible word of God. And so when it tells us that we are called to be holy, we are called to be set apart to his purposes. Knowing that our God is holy and there is no one like him, we are to be holy as he is holy. And then it quotes Leviticus. When's the last time you had a Bible study in Leviticus? When's the last time you had a devotional in Leviticus? Some people take a look at some Old Testament books like Leviticus and say, I mean, what's the application there? Some have looked at Leviticus and one commentator shared, Leviticus is about 101 ways to kill a bull, you know, when it comes to sacrifices. But Leviticus, what it's really about is the holiness of God. God was holy back then and he continues to be holy today. God called his people to be holy, set apart to his purposes as as he is holy in the Old Testament and he continues to call us to be holy today, set apart to his purposes. You read a study of Leviticus and you see how seriously God takes his holiness. You step out of line one little bit, you drop dead immediately. What we're reminded is that God is holy and we are called to be holy, set apart to his purposes. And when you focus yourself in awe and wonder at the nature of God and the character that is revealed concerning him in his word, your heart and your desire 
is to be holy like your father is holy. As obedient children, you have no desire to go back to that old lifestyle. You don't ask questions like Romans 6. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Because the more I sin, the more grace I get. No, I have no will or desire to go back to the old lifestyle because of my new founded relationship with God through my Lord Jesus Christ so that I can be holy as he is holy. And so we're reminded to prepare our lives for imitation. Be holy as he is holy. What does that look like for us? A couple of things and I'll unpack them. First, set yourself apart from the world and set yourself apart for the purposes of God. Set yourself apart to the word. Set your part to the glory. So set yourself apart to the glory of God. First, set yourself apart from the world and what the world loves. If you want to set yourself apart from the world, the first step is receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. If you're sitting here today and you haven't trusted in Christ, haven't received the forgiveness of sin, and you don't have the living hope that you are going to spend eternity with God and his people forever and ever, what we're encouraged to do is to set ourselves apart from the world <coughs> By first coming to trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Admit your need for him this morning. We're born into this world with a heart that's in a state of rebellion against him. Our sin is expressed moment by moment and day by day in our attitudes, actions, and affections. We are in a state of rebellion against a holy God. But thanks be to God, although we are deserving of wrath and eternal judgment, Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to die a sacrificial and substitutionary death on your behalf and mine. He loves you and he loves me. Trust in him today. Trust in him today. So first, put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Second invitation is to repent of your sin. Now, if you're going to trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord, part of that placing your faith in him is a changed mind that leads to a changed direction. I'm not walking that way no more. I've changed my mind. You know, it's, it's, it's the same thing. If I'm walking in this direction, why would I ever want to go back to the old lifestyle that I once left? And so if you're a believer and you're a Christian and there is some unrepentant sin in your life, as if there is in mine, the call on the believer is to repent. To repent is to change your mind that will lead to a changed direction. And you do that first by agreeing with God. That's what confession is. It's saying, God, this is sin and you call it sin accordingly. Those who commit sin cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but that's why you've provided a way through Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. 1 John 1, 9 says, if anyone confesses his sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The call on the church is to be holy as he is holy by receiving Christ, but also walking in repentance. To walk in repentance means that I'm not walking in habitual sin. Now, certainly, you may have triggers in your mind and that flesh is still there, even though it's been rendered inoperative and powerless in your life. Often, you can't control the, the, the first reaction, but you can control the second one. You may not control, be able to control the first look because you're in the world, but you are not called to be of the world, but you can control the second one. Walk in repentance. To walk in repentance means to take your sin seriously. You know, we receive instructions on how seriously we should take our sin. The Bible says if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. We're not talking about cutting out our eyes and cutting off our hands this morning, but to take sin so seriously that there are some things that you need to do. If your phone causes you to sin, throw it out. If there are certain places that you go that, that lead you astray, stop going there. You say, well, my workplace is a very, very terrible place to be. And listen, it's just not a healthy environment for me, but I've got to provide for my wife and my family and my children. Well, you've got to make some decisions. If you're being more influenced by the environment rather than influencing those around you, maybe you need to make some serious decisions, treat sin seriously, and take the appropriate steps that you need to take. Repent of your sin. Walk in repentance accordingly. And then thirdly, pursue accountability with someone who can check in with you daily. 
Um, the encouragement is to have someone that you can chat with. Uh, you have struggles and I have struggles. You know, sometimes we say, how are you doing in church? And I'll say, I'm good. And then I say, I'm good, we're all good. But the reality is you're not good, I'm not good, we're all not good, we're all struggling. And the truth of the matter is we need other people to struggle with. That's what the church is for. God has provided us accountability in the local church. Now, if you're married, what an opportunity you have to exercise accountability with your spouse. What an opportunity to have conversations with. You live with them. They know you. I mean, there's not a lot you can hide from them. Sir, you think you're hiding some stuff from them, but often they know what you're up to. What an opportunity to be transparent with the ones you love the most and exercise accountability with them. If you're not married or uh, you're seeking out accountability, you can do that in the church. That way we have small groups. You can meet with a pastor. You can meet with an elder. You can chat with some folks who can just have conversations with you and have one-on-one conversations that can go a far ways. And so first, we're encouraged to be set apart from the world. Be holy as God is holy and be set apart to the purposes of God. You know, every single day we need to set ourselves and our lives apart to God. In the morning, it's a wonderful thing to say, Lord, I set apart my eyes to you. I can't look at whatever I want to look at. I set apart my ears to you. They're not my own. I can't watch any movie I want to watch. I am not my own. I know those things that trip me up. I know those places I can't go. God, I I set my feet apart from you and where I go. I set my hands apart to you and what I do. God, may you be glorified in everything I say and everything I do. Set yourself apart to the Lord by setting, setting yourself apart to him every morning and every day. Secondly, grow in the knowledge of God and his holiness. The reason we read the word is not just to get more information, but to draw closer to God and develop our relationship with him. Every time we attend a Bible study or come to the teaching of the word on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or go into our devotional time, it's not so that we get to know more of the word, but we get to know more of the God of the word. If I'm reading the word and I, I'm, I'm reading through the Bible in a year, I read it a couple times in, the, in a year, but I don't draw closer in my relationship with God, I've missed it. Get to know God. You know, we're, we're living in an increasingly, um, um, uh, well, we're living in a, in a culture where the church is starting to become less and less knowledgeable about the word of God. I was just reading statistics that were just last year, and among those who identify as not just evangelical Christians, because you got some who say, I'm an evangelical Christian, but born-again Christian. The statistics, uh, or the study, took a look at those who identify as evangelical Christian, those who identify simply as Christian, and those who identify as born-again Christians. And so, from those who identify as born-again Christians, here are the stats for us. 77% say that having faith matters more than which, or 77% say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue among born-again Christians, or those who identify. 69% accepted feelings, experience, and the input of friends and family as their most trusted sources of moral guidance. 65% of those who claim to be born-again Christians say there is no absolute moral truth. 65% of folks. 62% contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, and purity. 61% say that all religious religious faiths are equal in value. And 60% believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. And the study concluded this, just 44% believe that when they die, they will go to heaven, but only because they have confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. In other words, nearly six out of 10 people who claim to be born again do not meet the widely accepted biblical definition of being born again. Isn't it interesting to note that as you have conversation with folks who identify as Christian or born-again Christians, sometimes they're not even believers. This morning, 
What the reminder that we have for us to get to know God, his holiness, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he promises to do. What a reminder for us to pour into the next generation, our children and our children's children, and to invest in the lives of those (coughs) around us. Even today, as you talk with folks, you can't necessarily assume, oh, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, we're all going to heaven. But you gotta ask those tough questions. Those foundational principles of our faith concerning who Jesus is. A majority of those who claim to be born again aren't even born again. And so we're encouraged to grow in our knowledge of God and his holiness. And then lastly, if I could say this as we set ourselves apart to the Lord, pursue holiness over happiness. You know, happiness is often dependent on happenings, but we're reminded true joy comes from the presence of the Lord in our hearts. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to be happy or joyful, but in your pursuit of holiness, there you will find ultimate happiness. And our ultimate goal in life is not me, is not self-centered. It's about him and his glory. God, how can I set myself apart to you and your purposes? Because that means even if I should suffer for the sake of Christ, if I'm doing it for the glory of God and set apart to his purposes, that is where true joy comes from. And even as these believers who are facing persecution, they're having their land uh, taken from them. They're receiving threats of death and things are not going to get better when this is written. Things are just going to get increasingly worse. And yet Peter is saying, suffering now, the The present suffering doesn't even compare to the glory of heaven that is to come. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. So first we're encouraged to pursue holiness by means of preparing our mind for action, uh, preparing our life for imitation. Be holy as I am holy. And then lastly, preparing our heart with the right motivation. The final command that we see in verses 17 to 21 is to conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord. Don't just rest your hope on the second coming of Christ. Don't just be holy as God is holy, but conduct yourself in the fear of the Lord. Verse 17 begins this way. It says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Um, First, we know who Peter is talking to. He's referring to those who, who call on the Father. Who are those who call on the Father? Those are those who call on the Father in prayer. Those are believers and Christians. What a great identity marker. Are you one who calls on the Father in prayer. Peter is talking to you and he's talking to me. Those who, have a, who are obedient children who have a unique relationship with our Heavenly Father through the person and work of Jesus Christ and his death that he died on our behalf. And if you call on the Father, and then it tells us who without partiality according to each one's, one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. How do we conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord by means of walking in accountability before him? What we're reminded of is if we call God Father, we're reminded that we are to respond to him in reverential fear, in awe and wonder of who he is. The text says that he will judge according to our works. And some of you are getting a little confused because as believers and as Christians, you're thinking about a text like Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who says we're going to be judged? Well, this judgment is not a judgment unto condemnation like the white throne judgment. This is a judgment unto, I mean, that judgment, the white throne judgment is a judgment unto condemnation. This judgment is a judgment unto commendation. We read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, that we will stand before the Lord and give an account for our life And we will be rewarded or not rewarded accordingly. The text says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's a judgment unto commendation. When it says that which is good and that which is bad, the good refers to that which is enduring. 
That which you have invested in that will have eternal rewards. When you invest in God, his word, and people, you're going to see those rewards in heaven. But when it says that which is bad, it's not referring to that which is morally bad, but that which is worthless. There are some things in this world that we invest in that have no eternal value. And in the end, when we stand before the judge of heaven, there are going to be things that will be completely worthless. You know, we invest in the busy schedules of our lives. We invest in our bank accounts and our careers. The investments we should be making are those things that moth and rust don't destroy. We are to invest in those things that last forever and ever. And so we're reminded this morning, the reason we should walk in holiness is because we are motivated by our accountability before the one we talk to and call our Father. There's a reason to live a holy life, to walk in holiness because of the rewards of heaven enabled by God's amazing grace that he has provided each one of us. So conduct yourself in the fear of the Lord uh, by means of walking in accountability before him as we get to read. And if you call on the Father without partiality, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. I like that. During your stay here, conduct yourself in the fear of the Lord. This is not our eternal home. We need to be reminded of this again and again. We need to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. This is just temporary. So stop investing in those things that are just temporary. And then not only are we to conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord by means of walking in accountability before him, but also focusing on Christ and his redeeming sacrifice. The means by which we, we walk in the fear of the Lord is just going back to again and again the good news of the gospel, of who Christ is, what he's done, and the redeeming sacrifice that he has provided. Verse 18, it says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers. As we get, have time to focus on Christ, first we're reminded of the need that Christ met. We had a need for redemption. That word redeem is an important term because it spoke of individuals who were in the slave market who needed to be redeemed. And we're reminded we are in need of being redeemed. Why do we need to be redeemed? Because as we've said earlier, we're born into this world with a heart that is in rebellion against God. We are enslaved to our master and our master is sin. We need to be redeemed. We need to be bought out of the slave market of sin because we are born into this world accordingly. And the unfortunate thing about this, gold and silver can't buy us out, can't redeem us. There's no amount of money that you can make, no amount of good that you can do in order to redeem yourself from the slavery of sin. The only way is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ and the sacrificial death of Christ who died on your behalf and mine. So we see our need for redemption as we focus on Christ. And Christ met that need by his precious blood. Now, we often um, talk about precious and use that term to refer to babies and children. Oh, that's a precious baby, right? Oh, that's a, that's a real precious child. But when we're talking about precious, we're not talking about babies and children. We're talking about that which is priceless. When we're talking about the precious blood of Christ, we're not talking about those cheap things like silver and gold that have no lasting value, scrap metal. We're talking about a blood that is priceless, that redeemed us out of the marketplace of sin. And when you focus on Christ and you are reminded of your need for redemption and the cost that Christ paid on your behalf, it leaves us in a state of awe and wonder at the love of God demonstrated to us. And our response can only be that of love. God, as you have set me apart to yourself by means of the Father's election, setting your affections on me before the foundation of the world, 
which means that I would be sanctified by the Spirit and redeemed by the Son. When I reflect on how much you love me by sending your Son to die for me so that I, if I believe in him, should not perish but have everlasting life, as I focus on the redeeming work of Christ on the cross and the precious blood of Christ that's been paid on my behalf, my desire is only to love you by means of being set apart to your purposes forevermore. Lord, you have my life. Where you send me, I will go. What you tell me to do, I will do because I belong to you. We see the price that he paid. We see the the need that he met. We also see the purpose for why he came. In verse 21 It says, or verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Did you know God knew that you would need him even before you were born? And so God's plan and purpose before the foundations of the world was to send Christ. And it says, but was manifest us to, but was manifest in these last times, why? That's a word that you need to to underline in verse 20. It says, but manifest in the last times for you. Do you know why Jesus came from heaven to earth to die? It was for you and his love for you. It says, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Church, the reason why Jesus came was in order to redeem you of your sins and to provide you forgiveness of those sins and an everlasting life with God and his people forever and ever. And that's the motivation for holy living. Just because we are in the world and not of the world doesn't mean we won't face the pressures of the world. But even when we feel the pressures, we can stand our ground knowing whose we are in Christ and why he came on our behalf and we can take take great courage in knowing that it's not in our power that we walk in holiness it's in accordance with the grace that we have been provided in Christ let me give you a couple takeaways as you consider what it looks like to conduct yourself in the fear of the Lord the first one is to conduct yourself in the fear of the Lord as one who will give an account every single day every action every attitude Uh, everything that you do, recognize that you will give an account before the Lord. And as a believer and as a Christian, consider the reward of heaven and work unto the commendation of your God. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then secondly, focus your mind on Christ and his redeeming sacrifice. John Newton put it this way, I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his languished eyes on me and near his cross I stood. Oh, can it be upon a tree thy Savior died for me? My soul is thrilled, my heart is filled to think he died for me. Church, may we focus on what Christ has done on our behalf in meeting our greatest need. He redeemed us by his precious blood and set us apart to himself before the foundations of the world so that we might be holy as he is holy, set apart to his purposes and useful to his cause as we say, Lord, I am available. Can we take time to pray? Father, I want to pray this morning for every person under my voice, every person in our church. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who knows uh, they need to receive Christ as their Savior and Lord, who recognizes their need to be redeemed, who has understood the, the, the truth about the precious blood of Christ and the sacrifice that he paid in order to provide us that forgiveness, I pray that they can come to faith in Jesus right now by saying this prayer. Father, I recognize my need for you. I've missed the mark, I've fallen short. But I know that while there is a distance between me and God right now, that's why Jesus came to reconcile me, to make me right before God. And so today, I make Jesus my savior. I receive forgiveness of sins and I receive the gift of everlasting life. I make Jesus my Lord. He's the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. 
Father, I don't want to just pray for those who want to receive Christ. I want to pray for those who want to walk and conduct themselves in the fear of the Lord and be holy as you are holy. Father, for those who need to repent of, 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 of sins in their life that they are, haven't turned from, I pray that they can say this prayer. Father, uh, I know that the one who saved me is the one who is sanctifying me. And right now, this morning, I abandon my sin and the desires thereof. I recognize that I cannot fight this bad habit or this sinful tendency on my own. I need your enabling grace. And so, Father, at this moment, I don't just abandon my sin. I rest on your power through the Holy Spirit that sanctifies me. And so, Lord, as I abandon this sin in this, the rest of this day and the rest of this week, may I walk in dependence on you, living a life set apart to you, walking in repentance, glorifying and honoring you in everything I say and everything I do. Father, I pray, Lord, every moment of every day we'd keep our eyes fixed on you. I pray for someone this morning who may be struggling in regards to feeling just the pressures of the world and and, and feeling the, the need to conform to the culture or to the crowd around them, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them, strengthen their faith in you as they focus themselves on you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time together. We give you honor, glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.